0: So today's episode is completely for funds. We are talking about the Ash Foundation and the scholarships and the research grants and how they support our current colleagues, our future colleagues, and expediting research to practice. So continuing on our gratitude journey for 22 d 3 oh my God, the year's still going. It hasn't ended. I am grateful Hell, I'm grateful for every single dollar that goes out that we're supporting because I have worked with students that were recipients of those funds. I've worked with colleagues that were recipients of those funds, and it truly does make a difference. I mean, sometimes that money is rent money so that the student can finish grad school because they wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise. Other times, it's that those funds allow for interprofessional education opportunities to occur so that we can better collab between two different professions. And y'all, those monies come from us. Those monies are that little checkbox come December when they say, hey, do you want to donate $32 to the Ash Foundation? Yes, the answer is yes. So I am grateful that the monies have come because our students aren't hungry and research is growing. So Ash Foundation is... Y'all, I'm grateful for you. And folks, if you're coming to Boston, buy a ticket, meet me there. I would love to celebrate the awesomeness of this organization with you. I think their shindig is Wednesday night this year, so I'll see you in Boston.
1: Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by
0: speechtherapypd.com. All right, everybody, we have an episode that I don't know how we managed to pull this off because I literally lost power on the first iteration with a fabulous double chin shock of all on video camera. And these ladies had to look at that shocked face for an extended period of time. But once the thunderstorm passed, we were able to (laughs) regroup through cell phone usage and recreate it. So we're here today and I am grateful that this all-star lineup is sharing so graciously of their time for a topic that is incredibly important to expediting research to practice for our colleagues and our interprofessional practice partners. So in case you're not aware, we are talking about the ASH foundation today, which some of us may think it's an extension of ASHA, but it's actually its very own entity. Yes, there is overlap and support, but they truly are down to the nitty gritty details on pen and paper, i.e. computers, laptops, two separate entities. And the work that they do funds our researchers, funds our future, funds the opportunity to make the world a better place and we are better for it. And I am hoping that by the end of today, everybody has found a little bit of funny money or love money to donate to the Ash Foundation, or you will join us um, next month for the Ash Foundation 5K. So without further ado, our first guest is Dr. Julie Barkmeyer-Kramer, who is an actual board member of the Ash Foundation, but on her, like Monday through Friday. She's a professor with the Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, director of the Voice Airway Swallowing Translational Vast Research Lab, the clinic director of the Voice Disorder Center, and adjunct faculty at the Department of CSD at the University of Utah. Whew. That is a lot, (laughs) ma'am. And we also have Julie Firestein, PhD, CCC, who's an assistant professor with the School of Communication and Sciences Disorder at the University of Central Florida. And her focus is actually, this is kind of a topic I want to talk to her again in the future on. It's all about early communication and play. And she runs the ESAP lab at the University of Central Florida. And then we have Shirley Pong, PhD, CCC, SLP, who's a bilingual language developmental researcher, and I'm hoping I pronounced your last name correctly. Yes, yes. Everybody's laughing because they they know how I I do struggle with multislavic words, which is why my youngest was in therapy. But she is currently a health and science policy fellow with the Society for Research in Child Development with the American Association for Advancement of Science and the National Institutes of Health at the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. And she actually focuses on health equity to reduce healthcare barriers for bilingual children and their families through culturally competent clinical care, which is absolutely awe-inspiring. And we have a non-SLP in the mix. So for interprofessional education, which will lead to professional practice, we have Jennifer Tucker, PhD, PT, DPT, PCS, and clinical associate professor in the program of physical therapy at the University of Central Florida. Florida is incredibly well represented today. And she's a board certified in the area of pediatrics by the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialists and the director of the University of Central Florida's Go Baby Go program, which there's actually a book called Go Talk Baby Talk. So when I saw the Go Baby Go, I was like, yes. We're covering core vocab. But, ladies, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Your bios read like who's who of colleagues. And it's always like, oh, man, these are really smart women. And, you know, we're just going to go through. And I promise if I drop a four letter word, we'll edit that out. So we're just going to (laughs) roll. But, yay. Okay. So, I always like to know a little bit about kind of where our colleagues came from, what made them want to be in the profession that they are. And we have a lot of us today, but I thought when I segue to each one of us, you could kind of take us from the top. So... And we have two, Julie. So Dr. Julie Barkmeyer-Kramer, with all the fancy labs, you are actually serving um, as our ASH Foundation board member representative. So hi, can can we start with you and tell us, how did you become an SLP and then do all these amazing labs that you do?
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, sure. I started out thinking I wanted to be a physician, and so I started out pre-med. I also, in my younger years, was an athlete, and so I have several family members who pursued a medical career, and I kind of watched how that went. I, I didn't think maybe that was exactly a perfect match, so I decided physical therapy. And when I got to the University of Iowa, the pre-professional program required you to work and have total some direct experience as a physical therapist. So in a group home I worked in, I had exposure to our field, and it was brand new to me. I thought, wow that's a career choice. That's a perfect match for me. <laughs> and so I started out very interested in kiddos. I, some of my first experiences were with behavior disordered kids. But when I got placed during my graduate training program at the VA hospital, I fell in love. So I found my, my people in my place and I decided I wanted to pursue a career in the hospital with adults and really loved aerodigestive anything. So that's how I landed in this field.
0: See, I love aerodigestive, but for the tinier size, honestly, when I was working with adults, every time I had to like remove dentures and do oral care, the boogers were too big. (laughs) (laughs) That was not going to work for me because you can't retch on a patient that's frowned upon.
2: No, that would be frowned upon. Yeah. I guess laryngectomies are not for you either.
0: Oh, God. No, <laughs> it's like a visceral response, but I can totally get puked on by somebody else's breast milk and it doesn't phase me one bit. But I mean, we all have our literal place in the world to quote a Matthew West song from like the nineties, <laughs> but I made myself old. Okay. So let's start with the very large question. What is the Ash Foundation? And preface this with I hadn't heard about the Ash Foundation when I was a graduate student, it just wasn't, it wasn't on my radar. And then I got out in the world and I started working as a clinical supervisor for University of South Carolina for their outpatient practicums. And they would send me CVs, student CVs and resumes to review for practicum sites. And a couple of these kids came through with Ash Foundation scholarships. And I was like, well, that looks fancy. And they were exemplary students. And I mean they sh- they strove and work hard. I think strove is a word. I don't know. It could be a regular past tense. That sounds weird. We're gonna roll with it. If it's not, it's a new word. But they were dedicated. And that was my first experience actually seeing the Ash Foundation in action. And it was very awesome to like awesome and like the not like hey man, cool rad, but just wow, that's inspirational. So what is it?
2: Yeah, now it's a great question. And like you, I don't think I was aware of the Ash Foundation until I was on faculty. So yeah, and so now I try to make a point to share about the Ash Foundation with students early on, starting as undergraduates going into graduate school. I like them to know about it. So the Ash Foundation is the philanthropic arm of the American Speech Language Hearing Association that we Commonly referred to as ASHA. And so, uh, as we know, ASHA is the National Professional Scientific Credentialing Association for over 220,000 members and affiliates, including audiologists, speech language pathologists, speech language hearing scientists, support personnel, and students. But the ASH Foundation is the nonprofit organization. And like you mentioned on the front end, it is separate yet linked with. ASHA. So it operates slightly independently. And so we are a nonprofit organization funded in part by the tax-deductible contributions of individuals, corporations, and organizations. And we support innovators. We try to spark innovation in communication sciences and disorders in our discipline. And our commitment is to give early support to promising researchers, students, and clinicians. We like to create a culture of quality research, helping to advance clinical practice, empower speech, language, and hearing professionals, and ultimately change individuals' lives, both our professionals in our discipline, but also those we serve benefit. And so we do that by providing resources to our scholars and investigators, explore forward thinking solutions, conducting groundbreaking research We invest in big ideas. As our disciplines foundation, we can take some risks and fund novel ideas, accelerate discovery and treatment advances for millions of children and adults. And so for ASHA members, it's important to know ASHA members' dues can help support the professional journey by providing everybody who's a candidate with resources to grow and strengthen your practice. So a gift to the Ash Foundation will go beyond supporting your own career, but also support the trajectory of our whole profession. So we offer grants and scholarships, but we also have clinical achievement awards that recognize clinician accomplishments and contributions to our discipline.
0: So disclosure, I know our next three guests have been recipients of some monies. I have not been a recipient of money, but full disclosure, I was a recipient of one of the state clinical achievement awards from the Ash Foundation a couple years ago.
2: Wow. Congratulations.
0: I set up the very first pediatric feeding and swallowing lab at a university in South Carolina, like had never been done before. But PDF doesn't stop when you turn three and go to the public schools. It continues. It follows you to quote Kristen West.
2: That is right.
0: Yes. So folks, when you get your annual dues reminder, which kind of cracks me up because that now comes out in the early fall and I'm like, no, 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 no. This is not in the budget. The budget will get paid with the last paycheck in December, like always. But when that annual dues reminders come out and they have that little checkbox for like a $25 donation to the Ash Foundation, may I ask you to check it? Because check it, make the donation because it truly does go directly to the researchers. Also, I have it on good authority and from past experience that the Ash Foundation shindigs that they host at ASHA are amazing. There's always excellent mommy juice or daddy pints, as we call it in our household, (laughs) available if you should like to partake. But it's a fun way to meet recipients of some of the scholarships and awards, as well as get to really know these people that are volunteering of their time to review countless applications for the scholarships. And and I have also served as a reviewer and to sit there and see the brilliance of our colleagues and what they actually are studying and want to put forth into the universe. It is very humbling and honestly, freaking overwhelming to pick one. So like,
2: <laughs> like we were just talking about how many applicants actually get awarded, and I think that it's something like 26%.
0: 26% of the applicants? Wow.
2: Yeah. So it's highly competitive. And I also, I love that you're identifying the, the opportunity to, to make a donation when you do your renewals. But also one thing that was really instrumental for my interest in continuing to be a donor to the Ash Foundation When I became ASH fellow and when I was awarded as an ASHA fellow, several people made donations in my name. And I just can't even tell you what that felt like. I was so honored by that. And so another very meaningful gift, if you're not sure how, if somebody's been awarded something or had an accomplishment you want to recognize, making a donation in their honor, they will receive notification of it. And it it is incredibly meaningful when people do that. Or we have these fun, like you mentioned, we have several fun fundraising activities. So we have three coming up this month, July 14th. We have the Sunset Wine, W-I-N-E, Down.
0: <laughs> it's a room full of SLPs. They know what wine means.
2: <laughs> wine Down with the Ash Foundation. And that'll be during the of Schools Connect. That takes place in Long Beach, California. Then August 26th is our virtual 5K Walker Run event. You can do that virtually anywhere you are in the world. And then November 16th, during our ASHA convention, will be our event, an evening with the Ash Foundation. And that will take place in Boston, Massachusetts. And we'll be recognizing our awardees during that event. And this year's event promises to be wonderful.
0: I have exciting news. I have it from on good authority from Dr. Gregory Loff, who I got an email from. And if you ever get an email from the Dr. Gregory Loff, everything stops. My heart stopped. I was like, oh my God, he lived. Because y'all, he's the reason we know non-speech oral motor exercises have no place in articulation, phonological recovery treatment methodology at all. Like, Thank you, Dr. Loff. Also, he's just a brilliantly, fabulously kind soul, but he was telling me that they're doing silent auctions this year at the Ash Foundation. And I love silent auctions. I mean, they're not always silent, but like, I love like the competitiveness and the play. And so bring your funny monies, pack extra funny monies, I'm going to be cut off from the Amazon card, but we're getting points. This is how I view it in my mind is that I get my points, but then come in and celebrate for um, Silent Auction. And they've got, I know on good authority, a ton of PFD stuff, but I'm sure other non-swallowing related
2: things as well. Yeah, it goes across the gamut. They always have wonderful baskets put together. And I think our ASHA award announcements came out yesterday. Yes. So if somebody you know and love was recognized, consider making a donation in their honor to the Ash Foundation.
0: Also, the convention chair this year, Dr. Kelly Farquharson.
2: She was an honoree.
0: Yes. Yes. So Kelly, thank you for you and Jennifer planned an amazing convention this year. Thank you for all of the work. Agreed. Awesome. Okay. I want to transition to how the actual scholarships have funded research and how it's moved. But did we cover everything that the board is and does and how to support?
2: I think almost. I can just, I know you had an interest in how long have we been around and I can answer that question. So the Ash Foundation is currently in its 77th year of life, so to speak. And in the course of our life, The Ash Foundation has awarded a total of $12.8 million to more than 2,500 recipients. And we are looking at how have those folks done. And we're finding that over 90% of our funded researchers go on to get additional external funding. And a majority of them have gone on to have highly successful careers and become thought leaders in our profession. So this all has occurred because of our generous donors. And so thank you to the generosity of our 58,000 donors. And that number grows every year. So we look forward to more individuals supporting our profession and our exciting innovators and sparking our future growth by contributing and growing our donor pool too. So please join up our family of donors.
0: Y'all, it really is a hoot. It's so much fun. I I mean, I go to Ash Foundation every, every year. Well, I did it last year, but there was extenuating circumstances. I had a, had a board responsibility somewhere else, but yes.
2: But you're right. Those ASHA events are always wonderful. Yes.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for coming
2: on. Yeah, thank you for having me and for this opportunity to share about the Ash Foundation. I'm a huge fan, obviously. <laughs> And and I want to also disclose, I have never been a recipient of a scholarship or award. I am just a huge fan. My students and my colleagues have. And I see what a huge difference this organization has made in our field and to our patients who we serve. And so for that, I really love contributing to this organization. I highly value it.
0: Yes. I'm telling you, for all the negativity we put in the world. About Asha and Ash Foundation, when you actually like look at it, we should disseminate all negativity. Should be gone because there's so much joy and positivity of what's actually happened. It's kind of why we do this, but yeah,
2: it's a high value on your dollar.
0: <laughs> now, Doctor Julie Firestein, I almost said Firestone. Please tell me that that has happened in the past.
3: <laughs> that one, I actually haven't gotten. So you would be the first, <laughs>
0: really. It's right there. But I mean, again, words. Thank you for coming on. And I want to hear about how the scholarships grants, what you received and how it impacted. But take me from your beginning, like everybody's origin story, right? So what is your origin story? What made you want to be a speech pathologist?
3: Yeah, well, thank you for having me and my partner here, Jen Tucker, my partner in clinical and research crime, I like to say. My origin story, I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I went to a very large private urban university as an undergraduate student. And I was an English major during that time. And I really had this affinity for language and particularly understanding how language helps us connect to one another and form relationships and how social communication serves such a valuable role in our in our place in the world. And I studied language for a while, but I was kind of a small fish in a very big pond at this university. And I had a roommate at the time who I had been placed with in the quad, as you do when you're an undergraduate student, who happened to be an upperclassman. And she was studying CSD as a graduate student. And she said, "You know, if you really love language and you want a job, and you might want to come take a look at some of what's going on in the allied health profession. So I took her up on her offer and I observed some intervention, pediatric intervention sessions and just knew at like a visceral level that this was the right fit. And I think it took just a week to change my major. And I never looked back.
0: I haven't done therapy since we moved. So I hadn't t- like been like in a therapy session since the last week of March and we're having summer camp- Scottish right camp here at JMU this Oh my gosh and I was supposed to just be the supervisor right? Well today was water- Day. You are not keeping me a Pisces out of water. Like it's going to happen. And so I was right in there with the thick of it, like three, two, one, go. And then like with the sprinklers and stop. And, and I was like, wait, I'm having too much fun, but you find it right. Like it calls you. And then you're like, this is what I need to do. And yes, yes. It might be a pediatric See, It was more than boogers. Dr. Julie, other Dr. Julie level of play. Yeah. But so then you went through school. When did so? How did Ash Foundation impact you? Where did that enter your walk?
3: Sure. So it certainly entered a bit later. I was a practicing clinician for a number of years and had always had this interest in research floating around in my periphery, and just happened to be at the right place at the right time and met a fantastic mentor in Dr. Leslie Olswang. And so I worked for her as a research clinician for a number of years, and then joined. Her lab is a doctoral student, and Leslie is very, has historically been very active in the foundation. And so I credit her with introducing me to the great work that goes on in the foundation. And she really encouraged me to apply for some funding during my um, pre doctoral training. And so I, I applied for some funding as a doctoral student, and I received a graduate student scholarship that helped support my dissertation work. And I felt like from that introduction, I was kind of Folded into this family that is the Asha Foundation, and so I stayed connected with the foundation through the different activities that went on. And so I remember selling tickets for the Asha Foundation events at the Asha Convention. And then when I launched my faculty position here at UCF, I started and started thinking really strategically about where should I put those first grant external extramural applications and the researcher practitioner collaboration grant was just such a perfect mechanism for the type of work that um, I'm so motivated to do. And it really um, became um, sort of a no brainer that Jen Tucker and I should um, apply for this because it was a mechanism designed specifically to fund a team, a researcher and a clinical person as a team to go out and conduct intervention work or really clinically meaningful work. it, the The mission of the foundation, and in particular the um, this this particular funding mechanism, was a natural fit, and we feel really fortunate to have been seen as a um, as competitive in that in that application process and to have received that grant. Um, so many years later, now in my academic life,
0: yes. So I think my my favorite part of what you said is that it was clinically meaningful. I'm super happy that you got the monies. That's amazing. But for like those of us that are in the trenches, right? Like my Monday through Friday has historically been early intervention. Like I am out there driving to patients' homes. And for those of us that are a little older, maybe a little hair dye going on. I went through school under the impression that research was lofty, far away and not applicable. Right. And I would love for nothing else to pull back that veil. And what happens in research, at least the researchers that I've been fortunate enough to meet and have on the podcast, it is directly applicable to my Tuesday afternoons when I was working in a double wide trailer in Red Bank, South Carolina, as applicable when I am in downtown and HUD supported housing in inner city Columbia, which is kind of funny because like, it's all like 15 miles away if they're a pinpoint, like you go from one to the other. Columbia is very small, but I love that it's clinically applicable. So can you talk a little bit about the speech side of your research? Because then I want to, go through alphabetically and then come back to the PT side with Dr. Jennifer at the end. But could you talk to us about the speech side? Like, how has this shaped your career? Like, what are we doing now?
3: Of course. So, well, sort of the origin story of that work really begins at the University of Washington as when I was a doctoral student and working as a research clinician to investigate a particular intervention protocol that focuses on really supporting pre-linguistic signals of communication for young children with really complex clinical profiles. Um, and we I had the great um, privilege of working on this particular project um, with Leslie Olswing and Pat Dowden and exploring the efficacy of this and the effectiveness of this intervention. Um, but the one thing that we always were missing and didn't um, have the opportunity to further explore is how this intervention fits into. Um, really early intervention service delivery, which by nature um, is conducted in a team-based approach with interprofessional collaboration. And so um, I feel like the baton was passed and I was able to, um, with Jen Tucker's um, enthusiasm and support and this shared vision for um, how do we really support children who are um, living in complex bodies? and have many medical needs in the earliest stages of, stages of life, you know, how do we support the, um, the, the, you know, developing the building blocks of pre-linguistic communication. So that's really what our work currently aims to do is to look at high quality um, early intervention for young children with complex needs in their families and to think strategically and systematically about how those components can be um, moved into our early intervention system so that they don't stay in the lab collecting dust or sitting in a in a research article on somebody's shelf. Well nobody has hard copies anymore, but <laughs> and, and some folder on your hard drive somewhere. I don't know. I like paper pencil. I'm pretty sure I have like everything on
0: the family guided routines based interview and like the supermodel right there hard copy.
3: <laughs> I mean, everybody in the eye has some Nick Williams on their shelf. That's for sure. That's in that one. <laughs> yes. No, but really thinking about how to, um, to conduct work that has, um, immediate applicability to everyday clinical settings. Um, and the ASHA foundation was very encouraging of that mission, um, and provided us with the funding to get this work launched here at UCF. And, you know, together, Jen and I are just, um, ultimately motivated by um, this fundamental belief that all children have agency and autonomy and capacity for play and communication and engagement. And as I'm sure Jen will describe mobility. And our job is to sort of unlock those doors and figure out those strategies that best support them and their families.
0: Agency autonomy and capacity for play. That's like yes. Yes. That should be a tattoo or the opening of a book somewhere.
3: Okay. <laughs> I'm keep that for later. <laughs>
0: yes. But really truthfully, that's so those are my patients. Those are the little ones that find me. So I'm going in and we're setting up AAC and like long-term loan trials and like coaching the caregivers on like how to engage with this. This is exactly what we need in our world because again folks we have said this numerous times on the podcast early intervention is not a bag of tricks don't bring a bag of toys into that home and then take it away when you leave because the message you're telling the caregivers whether or not you're stating it is you have to have this toy in order to make language happen and a lot of the times the families that we're called to serve they can't afford this and so we have to take away those that approach and really get into seeking to understand what the caregiver's goals are. Also, one of the things that I find is that, and this may be an overstatement, but sometimes in our push to teach the ASHA big nine, we don't always teach the comorbidities and the basic analogies. So we have to align the caregiver's knowledge and understanding of whatever their child's specific disorder disease is, especially when it's complex, with realistic outcomes given what we know about that. But that requires us on the professor end to make sure that when we're teaching typical language norms that we take into account, yes, but if you have this disorder disease diagnosis, it could prolong this. You might have to go this route. And that tie back in, that's just a call to action. But like there, this is amazing.
3: And just to follow up very briefly about on that, I would even, I would take that maybe a step or a leap for, further and say, not only for parents and caregivers, but for ourselves. I've learned so much from working with a physical therapist. I can't imagine doing this work with these families without a motor therapist by my side. And so You know, through this interprofessional collaboration, Jen and I have been able to, I believe, provide higher quality services to our families who come through our doors um, and who participate in our research, as well as feed all of that learning back into our, um, our educational programming for our graduate students in both the CSD and PT programs. And this particular grant mechanism from the ASHA Foundation has given us the latitude to spend time to do just that so um it's been it's been really beneficial from a variety of perspectives
0: yes and that's something that's really it's really difficult to teach ipe to ipp and put it into action and i know that capsed council of academic programs for communication sciences disorders it's a different entity that kind of streamlines how professors teach is that a good synopsis of that right they actually have an IPE IPP initiative now and so, like they have guest lecturers come in and talk about how do we bridge IPE to IPP So I don't know who you need to get a hold of to teach that, but that needs to happen because that early intervention, how do we actually teach that piece would be a presentation there would be phenomenal. Actually we I know the person. I will do an intro. <laughs>
3: Thank you, Michelle.
0: (laughs) Yes. Dr. Julie, thank you so much. Thank you. And like legit, thank you all for your work because that's going to change stars. So appreciate it and then Dr. Shirley, you work for the government. And that sounds very terrifying and awesome. And if somebody had told me once upon a time, a speech pathologist could work for like the government, like the man, and not just as like a professor, I'd been like, but really, are we allowed?
4: Because it seems very mysterious and very cool. So hi. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting me, Michelle. And I'm Very happy to be here and, yeah, absolutely. Talk about my my role and the work that I do. Yes.
0: Okay, now, how did you learn about the field of speech pathology? What is your origin story? I feel like we should have, like, dramatic superhero music for when we ask that question. Imagine drums. (laughs)
4: Well, I, I am bilingual myself, so I speak Cantonese, which is a Chinese dialect, and I grew up speaking Cantonese at home with my parents, with my family. And so I've always grown up with this love of language and culture. And um, kind of what uh, Julie had said too, like language being a tool to communicate with people, to connect with other people around the world. And um, recently, I've I've been reminded again about this passion that I have with language and culture. As I'm living in DC now, I um, recently joined this language exchange group where we just hop around at different restaurants, meet up with people who speak all different kinds of languages, and we just talk in in whatever languages, and so I, I get to practice my my Cantonese, my native language, and I also had picked up French in college too. So I get to practice that, and it's just wonderful to connect. Use language as a tool to connect with people, and so I came across this field of speech language pathology kind of randomly in college, and I realized that it brought together brought my 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 passion together, um, and I like. A helping field, this uh, health profession. And so I came across the speech language pathology profession and I started working in um, as a clinician in Boston's Chinatown and doing a lot of bilingual evaluations, working with this um, Chinese American immigrant population and seeing the health disparities that exist among this population and their difficulties in accessing and navigating healthcare and special education services. And so I wanted to um, do more research, learn about these disparities, learn about bilingual language development. How can we accurately assess and treat this population? And so that was when I pursued my PhD in, um, in bilingual language development. And then during my training, my research training, I became very curious about this translation from research to policy. How can the work that we do, the science that um, we have, inform policy decision-making to impact an entire healthcare system? And so that's how I got into the work that I do now at the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. That's amazing.
0: I have a very dear friend, Kelly Caldwell, who loves policy and procedure manuals. They're, I don't know, her novels. And she can read, I mean, she just delves into a policy and procedure manual and just tears it up, builds it and puts it back. And she's like, oh, but you have to see line item four and point two. And I'm like, how do you remember that? And she's like, I don't know, but it gets me excited. (laughs) But I appreciate her enthusiasm for that because the fact that we need individuals that can go in and see how to take our science and put it into a policy because that will guide our practice, right? Like that's the very first time I ever heard of anything like this was um, Dr. Lemiana McNeely. I saw her talk on the World Health Organization and I think I was maybe a year out from being seed. And this woman comes in and she spoke with passion and just she could command a room just by her presence, right? That was very, very, very humbling to watch. But I hadn't even heard of the World Health Organization up until then, much less the fact that there's um, quality of life indicators and, and they have all of these tools available. Also, folks, if you don't know that I exist, don't feel bad. I didn't either. Thank you, Dr. Lemietta. But also please go check the WHO models because they're phenomenal. But how did you hear about ASH Foundation and how, like, did you get a scholarship for your PhD or for your research? What happened?
4: Yeah. So I had not known about um, the ASHA Foundation I until I was um, doing my PhD program. And I'll be honest, I needed some scholarship money, I was a poor graduate student, and I was just kind of searching and then came across the ASHA Foundation. Um, But yes, that was the initial draw, but in all seriousness, what this money and this grant allowed me to do was to give me the space to do community-engaged research. And community-engaged research is not easy. It is risky, it is challenging, and things do not always go to plan. It requires a lot of time, energy, and thoughtfulness, but I believe in the importance of my work and the positive impact it could have on underserved children and families from culturally, linguistically diverse backgrounds. And so I needed the resources to give it my all, to do this important community-engaged research. And um, in my work, I traveled to Head Start programs and I set up lab um, in the community, worked with research assistants from another state in different time zones, worked with parents and teachers in the community. And this is not common among graduate students. And so already community engaged research is already complicated. And so I needed to allocate my energy, my time to focusing on just doing the research. And then COVID hit and it upended all my plans. And I had to figure out new ways to conduct community engaged research remotely and new ways to remain connected and maintain my trust with the communities who are already disproportionately um, impacted by COVID um, and are less likely to participate in research, particularly during this time. And so while I joked that the initial draw was to alleviate my financial stressors, but what this grant allowed me to do was to put my time and mental energy to dedicate solely on conducting my community-engaged research during the height of COVID when I needed to respond to the changes in the world.
0: I just have to start with the raw honesty of being the broke college student, because I just found out that the Hanera down the street from the university... If you walk there, every two hours, you can get a free tea or like a refill on your tea. One of the students told me, but they close at two o'clock, so I've been they have really good guava papaya tea. And she was like, she goes, I'm a broke college kid. She was like, we appreciate the free refills every two hours. So as soon as you said that, I was like, I'm a broke professor. I too appreciate the free refills every two hours. But sorry, it just made me giggle in my head and I had to share why I was laughing in such a serious moment. But now did you, and this is me being nosy, because of COVID, did you have an to like add more time on to your actual overall studies? Did it waylay the process? Because that happened to one of my dear friends, Dr. Rebecca Wada, it took her an extra year to conclude her PhD studies because of how COVID impacted her research.
4: I'm so glad that you asked that. And um, I I know exactly what you're talking about because certainly it impacted a lot of my fellow colleagues in um, who were completing their PhD program But fortunately, it didn't prolong my data collection. And it is, again, because of this um, fantastic grant that I received to help support me during such a stressful time when I had to pivot very, very quickly, and when nobody knew what to do during COVID, nobody was prepared for collecting data remotely during COVID when everybody had to stay home. And so, fortunately, I was able to allocate my my time and my energy into focusing on coming up with creative ideas to um, help to to recruit. I had to kind of shift gears with my leadership and management style, managing a remote research assistant team and figure out new ways to recruit participants, working on uh, writing a news article in a bilingual Chinese newspaper, to reach out to the Chinese community, to um, recruit this population for my my research study, and um, coming up with just a lot of creative ways to try to pivot from um, Pivot During COVID. And so fortunately, it didn't delay my time um, in my data collection process because I had this grant. And in fact, uh, because I had this grant, I even had the mental energy to write a fun Asha Leader article about how I pivoted during COVID times. And it's called um, How I Revised My Dissertation During COVID with a Little Help from Taylor Swift. (laughs) I think any researchers, regardless of whether you're a fan of Taylor Swift, would appreciate what it was like to pivot research during COVID time.
0: Oh, my God. You said Taylor Swift. You're my new favorite person. (laughs) That's amazing.
4: So can we find your dissertation? Is it published anywhere? It is published in, uh, within the, so I graduated from the University of Colorado Boulder. So the dissertation itself is published and the manuscript, I am working on that right now. And so stay tuned. Yes, please. When the time is right,
0: come back and let's dissect it and let's talk about it because this is amazing. And yes, I have additional ideas, but I will kibosh those for the sake of time, but and folks, may I also give the humble suggestion that if you are working with patients, colleagues, or patients or students or clients, because I know we call them all different things in those settings. If you say you're not bilingual, then please go back to some of Ash's caucuses because you have the gift of being bilingual. You That is such an amazing support that you can offer. I can speak English and bad English and the patients that I have worked with over the years don't always speak my language and I don't always have access to an interpreter, but I do know that some of the different caucuses and we've highlighted them on the podcast in the past do have supports available to you. So this is why we have caucuses. So please go back and research, reach out to those caucuses. So it looks very odd that y'all are here and I'm turning up here, but the camera is just off screen. Just so you know why I'm looking in that direction, but Shirley, this is amazing. Did we cover all the things? This was phenomenal. Wait, you received a grant. It was a grant, correct? Or a scholarship?
4: Yeah, it was the New Century Scholars Award. New Century Scholars Award.
0: Amazing.
4: I like to highlight what people can apply for. Well, thank
0: you. Ah, oh, phenomenal. And Jennifer Tucker, our PT in the crew, which is kind of wild because when I saw when they sent that over, I was like, "Did they mean to send a physical therapist?" Because well, I don't know that PTs can get Nash Foundation. I mean, obviously you did, but hi, that's cool.
5: <laughs> so thank you for including me among um, among other um, awardees from the um, Ash Foundation and. Um, you know, I have spent the bulk of my career with speech and language pathologists. So for me, it feels like a very natural place to be. Um, But on first glances to others, that may not be um, the case. Now, what made you want to be a physical therapist? Because that's some heavy lifting right there. And
0: PTs always kind of scare me. I've spent a lot of time in the PT office as a patient. So
5: like... I have always known that I wanted to work with children. um, And so um, I began to explore different medical professions. Um, I looked at medicine and I didn't, um, I wanted to have a longer relationship with patients than sometimes you see, or the opportunity, those individual interactions. Um, Physicians do amazing work, but certainly that their time demands are, are significant. Um, and so I, I landed upon physical therapy um, and I had the opportunity to have a year prior to going to physical therapy school where I actually taught in a varying exceptionalities classroom. And I had collaborations with speech and language occupational therapy and physical therapy. So I'm, I'm a little bit unusual in that I knew from the beginning that I was going to do pediatrics and all of the information on ACL repairs and total hips and total knees, I endured um, so that I could get to the classes on um, developmental milestones and neurological conditions and and those, those components that spoke more directly to me. Wait, you missed my favorite
0: part of PT, the pelvic floor therapist, because God bless them. After children, that is, I mean, folks, if you haven't signed up for it, I highly recommend find you a pelvic floor PT.
5: While extremely rewarding and a growing part of PT practice, not one that I spend my time in.
0: (laughs) Sneeze pee is legit. And I am grateful that they have people that can help you through that. But actually my pelvic, my, my last pelvic floor therapist even told me that they've started in working with children for pelvic floor therapy to offset severity of constipation and all sorts. And I was like, that is an aspect that I hadn't even thought about, but the application for our little ones that have cerebral palsy, that with the low tone and they can't contract,
5: it makes perfect sense. Absolutely and, and uresis, you know, bedwetting at night, all of those things can be addressed by individuals with, with pelvic health um, certifications. Yes, but again,
0: below the clavicle, not my thing. So, how like you just knew like did you
5: did you come across a physical therapist that you worked with? I just have been exposed to um, a lot of different opportunities. I did some shadowing. Um, I'm going to date myself with the term candy striper, but I was a candy striper. Um, I don't think that term exists anymore. It's probably not politically correct, but that is what I did. Um, but I, you know, I was aware um, of the profession, and um, you know, just made a lot of inquiries when I was looking. At at those opportunities, um, and on true confessions, I probably didn't pursue speech and language pathologists because I had received a lot of speech and language pathology as a child. So, as somebody who had spent a lot of time there, I was looking for something that had a little bit more um, movement involved, and and was moving around a little bit because I spent a lot of time on the receiving end of speech therapy when I was younger.
0: Yes. As have both of my children to be the SLP and both your kids have been in. Also my 10 year old's um, future bar trick, if it doesn't drop is, do you want to see my epiglottis? Because he loves to show that to the grad students. I'm like, I hope that drops in the near
5: future because mm." (laughs) yeah, I don't
0: need that being his pickup line for my future daughter or son-in-law, but like (laughs) I digress. So How did you find out about the Ash Foundation Scholarship? Because I'm envisioning in my head that Julie ran down the hallway at your office and was like, I have an idea, but I don't
5: know if that's how it
3: transpired. (laughs)
5: Well, it is. So
3: you're not entirely wrong.
5: (laughs) That is kind of how it unfolded. But again, I am um, really fortunate to work within a college that has an exceptionally strong um, CSE program, and so I had had an opportunity to hear about the the foundation and obviously the work um, a little bit prior to. But Julie and I have, um, when she came to campus, I run a program called UCS Go Baby Go. Go Baby Go is a national kind of movement, but I, I run the program here, and so she heard the kids in my lab, and she's like, I, "These are these are my kids." And so we just really, very naturally started um, practicing together. Um, and spending time together with children. And from that really emerged our shared research agenda. And then when this um, particular grant came forward, again, it just seemed like a really natural opportunity for us to really highlight that potential for clinically meaningful research and then, and furthermore, interprofessional clinical research. Yes, that
0: IPP piece is just so profound.
5: And I'm really grateful to the foundation for having a mechanism by which we could highlight that, because I think that um, really this grant allowed us to feel like, yes, this is a this is these are people that will understand what our goals are from an interprofessional standpoint, and that can have the vision for the interprofessional practice. So,
0: how did that translate to your Monday through Friday? So, when y'all received the money, what did that do with like your Monday through Friday?
5: We spend a lot of time together um, serving the the children. So we we run several um, initiatives that are designed to serve these medically complex children to provide them with offerings for play. And now what we had an opportunity was to really dedicate our energy and efforts towards um, research and looking at interventions. So it really has given us dedicated time to look at intervention development um, and to really document it for the purposes of really scaling it up and getting it to clinicians um, as quickly as possible. So that I think has been um, the greatest gift is just to have an opportunity um, for that dedicated time and um, to do it in a way that um, gave us the freedom to to be funded for research in the way that we practice. And those, those, those are not always natural opportunities. So we've been able to, you know, spend time in the lab serving children and really are excited about what um, we believe will emerge from that and what those implications are for practice. Because in early intervention, um, we know that it is about interprofessional practice that really is the The foundation of early intervention. So for us, this just made um, the most sense in terms of being in alignment with um, best practices for clinical work, as well as what we hope to be best practices for additional research.
0: So when you say lab, And this is always interesting to me because like different researchers have different labs. The way the lab is set up, is it like a preschool or are they coming in for like set appointment times? Like how can you describe to me what the lab looks like so I can see it in my head?
5: So, yeah, so I can tell you what my lab looked like that um, Julie wandered into when she arrived. Is it really just a big open room? We had a number of devices that were up, some portable harness systems and other devices that were up for play. And we had children in our lab with their parents and we were playing. Um, so that's, that is really what it looked like. Um, our shared space now looks like just an early intervention room. There's you know there's mats on the floor, there's toys around, um, there's places for parents to be engaged in a part of that. The only part I think that looks Lab-like are the cameras that are on the wall that allow us to capture the work that we're doing for later um, analysis. But otherwise, it looks very much, there are no magic toys. There's no magic bag. Um, It looks very much like what we would see in clinical practice. Yes. Thank you. Because there are no magic toys. I don't know.
0: I'm pretty sure Bubbles will always be the magical toy of all time. But that's just like my mom life going right there. Also, I still have yet to find an automatic bubble maker that lasts beyond a season. I just don't. I I think there's a secret conspiracy somewhere on that one. Now, when you're working with the caregivers, and both of y'all alluded to this ever so briefly in your comments, my understanding is that y'all are bringing the caregivers with you into the labs. That they're not waiting in the lobby for y'all. Oh no, absolutely. Can you please just touch on the importance of why we don't greet and leave caregivers and why we bring them back?
5: Well, you know, I think that we both believe this as clinicians. So, it really felt very serendipitous that we landed in the same place because we think very much the same clinically. And so I think that we both are very grounded in in best practices for early intervention and really what happens in you know, two hours a week doesn't move the needle for a small child. That's what happens the other hours of the week that they're with those caregivers. So I think for us, really having the opportunity to have caregivers present has been a gift. They're a rich sort of source of information about their child's preferences and what their child responds to. And there can be this ongoing teaching. And even though it's research, um, the feedback that we're hearing is that they're learning so much from just being in the room. Um, so I think that that really um, speaks to, it, they are, you know, it's really a three-legged stool between the three of us. It's, it's you know, Julie, myself and the parent, and we are the team that is is identifying what, how best to engage their child. Um, certainly we're looking at specific interventions, but how do we best engage their child? How do we like I said, identify their preferences and what they respond to. Um, And then the other thing that I will say just very briefly is in the world of early intervention, Julie and I continue to to talk about the level of trauma that many of these families have been through um, on their journey to, to bringing a little one into the world. And for some of them, they spent a long period of time in NICU. And so I think there's tremendous value in being in a room with clinicians who are talking about your child's strengths who are talking to you about things that you can do. And it takes what I think can be a really overwhelming experience that removes parents. And instead, it empowers them that they are an equal member of this team and that that really just acknowledges this has been really traumatic. And we're here to help you leverage your strengths to get you and your child through this next part of the journey.
0: My podcast co-host, Erin Forward, just interviewed Kim... Bartel, who is OTRLC slash NDT dash NDTA. And that episode will go, went out, ha, we're recording a little early, but it went out on Tuesday, all about trauma-sensitive practices for that reason exactly. Because we don't know the traumas that they've been through and what may be a trauma for you or I may be unfortunately, run of the mill for some of their experiences, or they may have a lower threshold, a smaller blip on our radar may be a profound trauma for them. And then to pull in Dr. Shirley and her work, that health disparity piece, that health literacy piece for our individuals that speak a different language come from a different background. Are y'all familiar with the I-95 corridor of shame in South Carolina? Um, The I-95 Corridor of Shame, historically, post-Civil War, all freed Black slaves were put on along this very poor dirt of land, and it is where it's very difficult to grow crops. So those individuals, unfortunately, a lot became generational, and they couldn't move from it. So the I-95 Corridor of Shame is part of something called the Abbeville School District Lawsuit, where the schools that run along the I-95 corridor got together and they sued the state of South Carolina for equitable distribution of taxpayer dollars to fund education. And it's a lawsuit in South Carolina that's been going on for 25 plus years. And the schools, some of the schools are literally falling apart. Like they have part of the schools shut down because the ceilings have fallen in and it's still not addressed. But that corridor tends to have higher health needs, and they don't have full access to broadband services, internet services. So Dr. Shirley, when you were talking about like what you were researching in Boston, I'm envisioning I-95 like on like a very large scale because it's, this is generational racism is what it is that we're witnessing. Yep. I mean, and I moved back to Virginia and we're right here, thrown stove from the mountains and not much is different there. Right. So it is profound to me how each one of y'all's work intimately overlaps and it's right there. And how, because of your work, we will have policy and practices so that my Monday through Friday, Will become easier from an intervention perspective. And that is just very, it's very humbling and makes me cry a little, but like in a happy, my Irish eyes are leaking <laughs> kind of way. So thank you. I know we hit our hour very quickly and I honest to God, just kind of want to have you all back just to kind of talk about all this in detail. Cause this is freaking cool stuff. I like research to practice. It makes me happy, but do we cover everything that y'all wanted to share about your research and about what the foundation has meant for y'all and for our fields?
3: Yeah, I think so. Thank you so much, Michelle.
0: Dr. Shirley, good. Yeah, I think so. Beautiful. And Je- Dr. Jennifer. Yes. No, I think so. Well, thank you. And the other Dr. Julie, who sits on the board, thank you. This is bloody hell. Y'all are doing cool work. This is awesome. So please keep giving away money. (laughs) I promise to buy adult beverage tickets if you continue to give away money. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well so let's go through if you have what grandma wood would call a little bit of love money lying around at the end of the month then please check out the ash foundation you can find them on linkedin you can also find them on they now have a instagram account thanks to i believe it is kelly kelly runs the instagram account i think So you can check them out there. Also, we'll have it hyperlinked into the show notes at the end. As always, hit us up on First Bite Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook. And Erin and I have individual accounts on LinkedIn. Also this week, we rolled out our very first research Wednesdays where we're actually interviewing the researchers on the First Bite Instagram account. So if you're not familiar with that, two Wednesdays a month, we are going to be directly interviewing the researchers because as much as I love a good tick of the talk and a good reel, sometimes I think the information gets misconstrued and twisted and the message could be lost So Research Wednesdays is Erin and I's attempt to elevate the voices of those that are conducting the work to grow our clinical skills. So hit us up there. We just had Dr. Amy Delaney with Marquette Pete's feeding lab on. And at the end of the month, we're having Meg Ciamone. Meg, I got it that time because you taught me the hand trick on to talk about caregiver coaching for pediatric feeding disorder. So there we are. But ladies, thank you so much for coming on. Be kind and feed those babies. This is Michelle Dawson, and I need to update my disclosure statements. So, my non financial disclosures I actively volunteer with Feeding Matters, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders, NFOSD, Dysphagia Outreach Project, DOP. I am a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents, CSAP, a past president of the South Carolina Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, SCISHA. A current board of trustees member with the communication disorders foundation of virginia and i am a current member of asha asha sig 13 skisha the speech language hearing association of virginia shav a member of the national black speech language hearing association in basla and Dysphasia research society drs additionally i volunteer with asha as the topic chair for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2023 Convention in Boston, and I hope you make it out there. My financial disclosures include receiving compensation for First Bite podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, as well as from additional webinars and for webinars associated with Understanding Dysphagia, which is also a podcast with SpeechTherapyPD.com, And I currently receive a salary from the University of South Carolina in my work as adjunct professor and student services coordinator, and I receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow Truth, Science and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, as well as compensation for the CEUs associated with it from speechtherapypd.com. So, those are my current disclosure statements.
1: Thanks, guys. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely.